The fall conference season is right around the corner, and we've got two events that you need to put on your calendar. On October 19th, we are back with Transition AI New York. Transition AI is the leading B2B event for energy practitioners and artificial intelligence experts. The New York event will explore current use cases and deployments within electric utilities, the role AI can play in streamlining project development, maximizing revenues, and integrating DERs. Plus, I'm going to do some live interviews and storytelling on stage. We'll present some deep market research, and we'll have a workshop on use cases. Our listeners get 10% off by using the promo code PSPODS10. Come join me, our journalists and researchers, and a bunch of experts in Manhattan for Transition AI. Register at the link in the show notes or go to transition-ai.com. And for you West Coasters, Canary Media is holding another Canary Live. This one is in Berkeley, California. It is on October 3rd. These events are super fun. We've hosted a couple of them with Canary. Uh, Panelists are handpicked by the Canary editorial team, and they'll dive into all things related to the energy transition, the Inflation Reduction Act, technology, and uh, innovation. Drink, eat, socialize with clean energy leaders, investors, inventors, public leaders, and advocates. You can follow the link in the show notes to get your tickets to Canary Live Bay Area today. Transition AI New York, Canary Live Bay Area, Put them on your fall calendar for October. We'll see you there. Hey, everyone. Shale here. So, as you know, there's a lot going on in battery world right now. There are billions of dollars flowing into new factories for everything from lithium refining through cells and modules and recycling. Automakers are getting into the mining business. And we're even exploring the bottom of the ocean for critical minerals. If you want to understand why we have the battery landscape that we have right now, I think you'll want to listen to this episode. Last year, I had a conversation with Sam Jaffe, who was at the time the VP of Battery Storage Solutions at eSource and is now the Senior Director of Business Development at battery technology company Adionix. But it's a conversation that is definitely still illuminating today. We talked about the origin stories of different chemistries like LFP and NMC, why those differences matter, for the types of vehicles that they fit best, for the countries that dominate each chemistry, and also who in the supply chain actually makes the key decisions about which chemistry to develop for a particular model. So even if you know a bit about batteries, which I suspect many of you do, you will still, I think, walk away from this conversation feeling a better grasp of the complicated dynamics that are at play here. We'll be back next week with a new episode, but for now, here's Sam. From the studios of Postscript Media and Canary Media. I'm Shail Khan, and this is Catalyst. We're in the midst of an unprecedented industrial expansion that, you know, I, I really struggle with finding any any example of something like this. Maybe the beginning of the car industry back in the 1910s, something like that. NMC, LFP. LMO, NCA, lithium metal, solid state, silicon anode. There are only three possibilities. One, you already know what I'm talking about and are very excited for this episode. Two, you don't know what I'm talking about and are soon to be very excited about it. And three, you're in the wrong place. I'm Shale Khan. I'm a partner at the venture capital firm Energy Impact Partners. Welcome. So battery chemistry, so very important, so very busy with announcements, and so very complicated. But this is what it's all about. Let's step back for a second. So fundamentally, here's what I think most folks think we want. We want an electric vehicle battery that offers long range at low weight, lasts a million miles plus, charges much faster than today's batteries, and costs significantly less than today's batteries. But actually, is that really what we want? Do we need all of those things? What is it going to take to get to the point where we feel like we've settled the question of what chemistries and what types of batteries should we put in our vehicles? The thing is, there's still so many different chemistries and architectures and configurations. Each one has its own trade-offs. There's hundreds, literally hundreds of companies pursuing different solutions here. It's really complicated. So let's take a spin through EV battery tech world. 
Our guide this week is Sam Jaffe. Sam is the VP of Battery Storage Solutions at eSource and has been for years one of my most trusted voices on the rapidly evolving world of batteries and the companies that are building them. So with no further ado, here's Sam. Sam, welcome to Catalyst. Thank you very much for having me. Excited to have you on because there is, as always, I think, so much to talk about in the world of EV batteries. Let's start with the lay of the land. Can you kind of walk me through a journey through the current world of EV battery chemistries? What is dominant? Who's doing what? Like, why Why did we end up where we are today? So the very first EV batteries in that T0, that, that sports car that was, they essentially took laptop batteries and put them in and made it, made the very first electric vehicle run were laptop batteries. They were lithium cobalt oxide. Lithium cobalt oxide is basically a big hunk of cobalt, which is one of the most expensive materials you can mine out of the earth. Um, and, but it works. It makes laptops run. And for about half an hour, it made a car run. Um, but you want something that's more, uh, that's cheaper, first of all, that is not gonna, we're not gonna run out of the raw material that makes it, i.e. the cobalt, secondly, um, and that is energy dense enough to make the car run uh, for a, 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 an appreciable and, and necessary amount of range. So uh, where, the, where the world moved towards was in two directions. Um, one was lithium iron phosphate, which is usually uh, the acronym used for that is LFP, F being for ferro, lithium ferrophosphate pharaoh, another word for iron. But it's essentially a big hunk of iron with some phosphorus in there and a little bit of lithium. Um, and lithium iron phosphate has, it, it's very cheap earth abundant materials. And um, the problem is it's, it's, uh, it's not very energy dense compared to other options. The other direction that we headed in was towards what are called in the industry ternaries. And they're called ternaries because they're usually a conglomeration of three different elements. And those three elements usually are nickel, manganese, and cobalt. And the, you would call, and, and the term that's used, the, the acronym that's used for that is NMC for the nickel, the manganese, and the cobalt. Another commonly used one is nickel cobalt aluminum or NCA, but those those and and various formulations of those are used in um, under this 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 heading of of ternary cathodes. And by the way, I'm I'm describing the cathode part of the battery. The anode part of the battery is traditionally all graphite. Um, uh, although now silicon is starting to make its way in there too. But um, in terms of, of the, the main types of batteries, we've got some moving uh, in cars, some moving towards lithium iron phosphate or LFP, some moving towards the ternaries such as NMC. And the main difference between those two is energy density. Um, the, you, you get a lot more watt hours in your kilogram of NMC batteries than you do in an LFP battery. Um, the other main difference is cost. Iron is a lot cheaper than nickel. And so the LFP batteries tend to be cheaper, but heavier and, and take up more space than the, uh, than the ternary batteries. So what's the rough split today in the EVs that are coming off the line between LFP and the ternary batteries? And is it just, is it simple enough to think of the heuristic as being lower cost, lower range vehicles are probably going to use LFP, higher cost, higher range vehicles are probably going to use NMC or one of the ternaries? It's not because there's also a geographical split too. And again, it goes back to this history. And let, let, if you can bear with me, I'm going to try to, to, to go back to the dawn of time or the dawn of lithium ion time. And, you know, the, the, originally we had lithium cobalt oxide and then and the NMCs and the other ternaries were the clear um, next step. But then 
um, John Goodenough at the University of Texas discovered LFP, and it looked like it might be a, a kind of a you know a a, a, um, a leapfrog over the traditional methods of 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 making cathode materials. And this was um, back in the '90s, and at the time, China, the China Inc. was planning its its ascension into the lithium-ion space. At, at that time, very few batteries were made in China. They were mostly made in Korea and Japan. And the the Chinese um, uh, technocratic state made its decision: Hey, we're gonna we're gonna go all in with LFP. And we're gonna. Th- this is gonna be the the Chinese cathode, and so they put all of their development effort and all of their capital allocation towards LFP, and then and that worked reasonably well. So you had a lot of the first cars in China were LFP based cars, um, and you had a lot of the Chinese battery manufacturers essentially putting all their poker chips on the LFP spot. Um, but then you you saw Tesla be so successful with using the NCA ternary chemistry, and that caused a, a a bit of a panic in China, where they decided to turn the aircraft carrier. and And this was this, now we're talking about the 2017 timeframe, um, and say, hey, let's move back to the ternaries. We're we're going to shift all of our development. Um, and all of our our attention and resources towards making NMC NCA type batteries for cars, um, and and so at this point in China, you've got about a fifty fifty blend of LFP cars, which tend to be the smaller cars and tend to be the plug in hybrid cars, versus uh, ternary based cars, which tend to be the larger or higher end cars. Um, What's interesting is that now we've got a reverse somersault going on where the that leapfrog has happened uh, uh, backwards towards LFP, and we suddenly have a resurgence and a, a renaissance in LFP that is causing China to recommit towards LFP and causing others to consider it also. I guess two related questions to that that I always have when I hear about these trends in, in battery chemistries one being like who drives the decisions is it the auto oems who are saying no i want to order lfp batteries for this next model that i'm going to roll out off the line in a few years is it the battery oems who are pushing them onto the market saying no we've made decisions strategically we think that nmc is the the cathode chemistry we like and then they're pushing it on the auto oems like who who's the decision maker there and then second like how how long does it take to turn that ship? Is it a matter of, okay, we need to build, if we're going to, you know, shift an entire line of a series of models of new EVs to a different cathode chemistry, we need a bunch of new gigafactories to spin up in order to do that. And so it's a multi-year time horizon where like today we could predict what it's going to look like three, four years from now, because we know all the CapEx decisions that the battery OEMs are making or is it quicker than that somehow yeah I think it's that's a that's an the the that's an interesting question that that goes to the heart of why this is so confusing and why why it's it's taken so many strange turns is that you know go back to 2007 when the Chevy volt was first being designed and you know historically in the car industry, the car OEM dictates exactly what goes into that car and tells the suppliers, this is what you're going to do, and this is what we want. Um, But what happened was you you got to the point where the car makers decided we're going to make electric vehicles, and they went to the battery manufacturers, and the battery manufacturers said, what batteries do you want in them? And the car makers said, whatever, we don't care. Because the key IP in all this is going to be the battery pack itself. How the, the drivetrain integration is what we want to own. The battery cells themselves are going to be commodities, so you just do whatever you want to do. And then so we, we ended up with quite a bit of confusion there. 
um, because because of that kind of the car industry's reluctance to get their hands dirty with battery chemistry. That changed with Tesla's success because Tesla certainly got very involved in battery chemistry. And although Panasonic makes all their made all their their battery cells, they um, Tesla and Panasonic developed their product very closely together, and they proved the template for this is this is the car company's role. The car company is not going to make the batteries, but it is going to be extremely involved with their tier one supplier of batteries in developing, designing, validating the battery that's going to go be the core of this car. And that's what we've learned in the in the last 10 years of the development of the of the electric vehicle is that the car is the battery. And it's not just the battery pack. The car is the battery cell. The car is the battery chemistry. And for the car company to um, to just slough off the responsibility of whatever, who cares what's in it, um, is was, was a really critical mistake on the part of some of the car OEMs. And they're all changing their tune now. So now you have Volkswagen announcing last year that they're actually going to be manufacturing batteries as well as buying batteries very that are developed very closely in coordination with their suppliers. And you have uh, General Motors doing a joint venture with LG. The Ultium uh, line is going to be a, a joint venture between LG making the batteries and GM very closely developing and designing those batteries. Same thing with Samsung SDI and Stellantis, ACC and and uh, Mercedes. Um, all all of the companies are going towards that template where the car company now is going to be in the future the determinant of exactly what it, it, what those batteries are composed of. And that sort of speaks to another thing that I've I've wondered. You know, you see all these. We'll, we'll get into the sort of future chemistries and what might change in a minute. But we see all these companies that are pursuing some new chemistry, cathode chemistry, or anode, or solid state, or whatever new electrode. And who they have to engage is never as clear an answer as you'd like it to be, because they both they're you know you've got. Uh, the auto OEMs are often like looking to test pouch cells or whatever it might be. At the same time, they they figure they're probably not going to sell directly because the auto OEMs aren't going to buy directly from some startup in most cases. So do they also need to engage with the LGs of the world or CATL or whoever it might be? Like what's the, how, how is the um, supply chain for batteries and sort of who dominates it evolving? Well, I think, you know, from a from a startup company's perspective in the battery space it's everybody has the same sad tale which is i've developed this miracle powder that makes batteries great here let me sell it to you car company and car company says no talk to our battery company battery company says no talk to our cathode company it turns out the secret is they're all involved and you have to have deep relationships with all e- each layer of the supply chain in in developing that but it gets it gets it get this the tail gets sadder because your miracle powder is a battery is a you know it, it's a very complex ballet going on between multiple components inside that battery the anode the cathode the electrolyte the separator um, and Anytime you make one small change to one of those with your miracle powder, the everything else changes too. So a company that develops a new anode material, for instance, quickly finds out we have to become electrolyte experts because you're going to change your electrolyte formulation to optimize for this anode. They become electrolyte experts. And then they realize this is changing the cathode inter- interface too. We have to become cathode experts. And pretty soon... You're, you are becoming a battery company, even for you know a company that, that is still focusing on one component of the battery, they have to become complete battery experts with an electrolyte department, a cathode department, a full cell uh, assembly department, all of that um, to the point where they're, they're essentially a battery company, not a, a powder company, even though they're trying to sell that powder. Um, which is why 
you 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 don't typically succeed as a seed scale company. You don't get a two million dollar A round and start selling to and start a building a, a company after two years of development. You um, you you need a hundred million dollar C round to um, to be able to sell a powder into this industry. And at the same time, on the business development front, you're you're developing relationships with every part of that supply chain because you're not selling to one company. You're selling to a consortium of companies who are deeply embedded with each other and deeply and and deeply coordinated with each other with how they're developing their products. Yeah, you're actually getting at one one of the interesting dynamics from a sort of venture capital in this space perspective that I think has played out over the past couple of years continues to, which is to your point, like these are in, inherently like very complicated not, setting aside how difficult it is to actually like develop the technology, manufacture it consistently and so on, which is notoriously difficult in battery world. Um, but beyond that, it's also just like a very capital intensive and very long enterprise. And so that used to be a sort of source of defensible advantage for the few players that were able to attract sufficient capital and over a long enough period of time. So companies early sort of pioneers in like new battery chemistries, companies like QuantumScape and Sela, Nanotech and, and a couple of others, you know, one of their advantages was, well, we've proven we can raise the capital that we need to take this to the next step. And not everybody could do that because the amount of money is sort of staggering. But then we had this wave of investment over the past, I don't know, three years probably uh, that, you know, culminated in a SPAC boom and a bunch of solid state companies going public and all that. And the money started flowing in in a way that it never had before. And so now there's lots of companies that have raised hundreds of millions of dollars. And so capital is not really a defensible advantage anymore. The technology and ability to execute will potentially be. But now we're back in this slightly more capital-constrained environment. And it'll be interesting to see whether the next wave of companies are sort of back where we started, where a few of them will attract most of the money and the other ones will struggle from that perspective, if no other. So that used to be my cheat, is um, there's over 60, the, the, the ecosystem of silicon startups, is there's over 60 of them. And to, to be specific, you just sil- silicon anode, right? So over 60 just in that space, right? Set aside... Every every all everything on the cathode, all the other chemistries, just silicon anode. Just silicon anode. Over sixty companies that we track and try to make an analysis of. This is where they stand within the competitive marketscape, um, and that's really hard to do with that many contenders. So the uh, but I was able to cheat because the the rank in our ranking matrix, the single most important factor was how much money have you raised. Not how good is your technology, but how much money is, have you raised? And and there's inevitable pushback saying, "Well, wait, what? How does what does how does that speak to their technology, or whether it's going to work or not?" And the answer I would answer, it doesn't matter because it the the fact that you've raised money gives you a way to solve problems that other people that haven't raised money can't solve problems. So it gives you an inherent competitive advantage. Um, and so I could kind of cheat on the analysis by saying the ones that raise money are in the lead because they raise money. Um, that, that, that went away in the last two years because everybody raised money with a handful of companies that have gone out of business. It's true. But um, pretty much everybody uh, has raised some amount of money some of them have raised obscene amounts of money, um, I, and I, I shouldn't say obscene because I, I would I, I I wish every startup founder has the problem of of having obscene amounts of money, um, but it's it's uh, it, that's no longer a differentiating factor is is the level of of capital you've raised. Um, however. You're right. I think we are entering a, 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 a winter in that regard. And um, those that did raise money and um, inevitably, you know, didn't spend it perfectly in a perfectly optimized, efficient way are now going to uh, are, are going to be weeded out. Um, and 
we're back. Uh, I can't cheat on my analysis anymore. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> sorry, to, to, sorry, you lost that, that <laughs> clever hack in your rankings. I mean, but the, the, it's another thing we probably should spend a minute on, uh, which everybody who's in this world knows already. But the the sheer volume of companies trying to tackle problems in battery and EV battery chemistry is is sort of staggering. I mean, you mentioned sixty in silicon anode alone. I don't know how big is your over like if you include everything that you're tracking, how many quote unquote startups or started ups do you estimate that there are? In 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 it's definitely over a hundred of and and by that I don't mean, you know, university labs or somebody that's that's got a friends and family grant. I mean people that have raised A rounds um at, at the very least is we're we're well over a hundred. Silicon is an especially fertile area because there's so many ways to that somebody can propose to make a synthetic particle that um, of of silicon, usually a silicon carbon composite. Um, with the 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 main areas of concentration of startups are silicon anodes, lithium metal anodes, and as a subset of lithium metal anodes is solid state, but lithium metal anodes is is we've got a, a good a, close to 30 companies that that are that we're we're tracking and following. Can I just pause um, on that for one second? This is one thing I think a bunch of folks don't understand. You hear a lot about solid state batteries. Solid state so it's solid state is is often uh used in order to get a lithium metal anode. That's like sort of the one of the purposes of a solid state battery is that they pair well in theory, but you can also do lithium metal with a liquid electrolyte. And so there's so lithium metal is sort of the umbrella category under which falls most of the solid state companies and some lithium metal liquid electrolyte companies. Right. Right, exactly. The 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 real prize with solid state is getting to a lithium metal batteries. There's other advantages too, some of which are very interesting and are only first are only beginning to be uh explored. But the uh the the big prize is getting to the 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 ideal, the ultimate anode material, which is lithium metal, which is just pure lithium. The the lithium ions travel across to the anode side, and then they just plate as metal on there. So you don't have any extra material that's used to house the, the lithium ions. You don't have anything that in the way, and um, you, you, you get the, the most energy-dense possible anode you could possibly get with a lithium metal anode. So I guess one last thing before we move on to this next category of like what's coming down the line. Um, it's been a heady time and a kind of a crazy time in like supply chain for everything, but EV batteries have gotten wrapped up in that as well. And we've heard lots about the cost of the raw materials like lithium and cobalt, nickel spiking. There's also supply chain bottlenecks. They're sort of plaguing every industry. Like what's, where are we today in EV battery supply chain world? Is it a huge crunch at the moment? And is it going to delay the rollout of new vehicles or just raise prices? Or does it feel like it's starting to smooth out a bit? Um, we're, we're, in two, we're experiencing two different phenomena. One is just the general inflationary trends of everything. Everything is getting more expensive. And that includes the, um, the, the, the commodities that go into, the, uh, into batteries like copper and aluminum. Um, it includes things like PVDF, which is a, a chemical that's used as a binder. It's a it's a very small component that goes into the battery, but and it's an industrial chemical that's used in hundreds of industries. But it's up eighty percent over the last year or two. Not because of the battery industry, but just because everything's more expensive. Um, the second phenomenon is that is is the battery world is under is un, is is undergoing inflation on steroids. Lithium is up 900%. There is a severe uh, supply squeeze of lithium. Um, there's the spot market in China for lithium is, is in the $70 a kilogram for lithium carbonate equivalent, which is the feedstock material that goes into the batteries. And, um, you know that's that's not normal inflation. That is the the effect of a extremely high growth 
battery market that's going on. So those are two separate relate, but related phenomena that we're undergoing at the same time. And I think that the macroeconomic inflationary trends are starting to subside a little bit. I do expect lithium pricing will, uh, will decline. It's not going to stay in the stratosphere where it is now. Um, and I think that it's going to, uh, return it, the, I, th- I think expensive lithium is going to be sticky. It's going to be with us for the next decade uh, in terms of where historically the price of lithium has been. It's going to remain expensive over this next decade, but it's going to come down from the stratosphere. Um, what concerns me is when we look at our demand forecasts, for um, 2025, 2026, 2027, and the amount of lithium that's going to be required to supply all of those batteries that we're expecting to 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 be coming. Um, and now is the time. If 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 you are in are allocating capital, um, now is the time that you start building these mines or these expansion projects at existing mines to supply the lithium to, to, to be ready for 2025 requirements. And we're seeing a massive build out of lithium, all of the majors, the Albemarle and Livent and, and SQM are all expanding dramatically. We're seeing a lot of new mines, lithium Americas is building a, a, a mine in Argentina and another one in the U S and we're seeing others that are are getting are beginning construction now, um, but it's just not enough to to meet those twenty twenty five demands. So we think there's going to be another run on lithium in that period twenty twenty four twenty twenty five time period that's going to be as serious as today's price bubble, and um, is going to result in demand destruction. In, in that time period. So we actually pulled our forecast back in 2020, our, our battery forecast back in 2025, 2026, because of lithium shortages, or expected lithium shortages. So you're saying that will flow down to less EV demand in those years because prices will be so high? Correct. The EV demand outside of China, because China is going to be less affected by this because the Chinese investment in lithium has been, uh, has, has kept track with future demand requirements in 2025. But outside of China, we think that we, we have pulled back our EV forecast by between five and 10%, depending on the, on the, uh, the, the country and region. But, um, we think that there, there, it is going to affect the, uh, the, the demand for EVs. We've talked about the sort of current state and maybe a little bit about the, some of the possible future changes to battery chemistries and EVs. Um, one question that I have at the high level you know, as it stands today, the vast majority of EVs, as you said, they're using a graphite anode, liquid electrolyte, and one of two versions of a cathode, either an LFP cathode or or this category of cathodes that includes things like NMC. Um, moving forward, is the general wisdom or is your view that we always have a very sort of a small number of chemistries that dominate the market? Will most batteries look fundamentally similar to each other in EVs, or is there going to be this like, you know, Cambrian explosion of different solutions for different vehicles that have different needs in terms of range and uh, fast charging, all this kind of different stuff that where the different chemistries have different characteristics? I think we are moving towards essentially a, a, a three buckets of cathodes. And, and, and specifically, and, and the on the anode side, it's going to be um, for for this next decade. It's we're still going to be living in a in a graphite dominated world with more and more silicon coming into the anode, but it's still going to be mostly graphite. But on the cathode side, we're we're moving towards 
three buckets of anodes. And you're seeing this being repeated by multiple car companies, starting with Tesla, then VW said it explicitly, and um, uh, Stellantis has also said that this is their, their vision too. And those three are LFP, back to our original topic, LFP, uh, high nickel NMC or NCA, but the high nickel ternary chemistries. And then the third one is going to be the middle market, and that's going to be manganese-rich, lithium-rich cathodes. And that's that's a really interesting brand-new area. It's not it's not brand new. It's it's a derivation of the ternaries of the ternary cathodes, but it's essentially replacing nickel for uh, replacing the nickel with manganese. So there's more manganese, less nickel, less cobalt in in that cathode. And manganese is a inherently cheaper material and is going to end up if if they can make that middle bucket work really well is going to be um, the, the I think, the most common chemistry of choice for cars by the end of the decade. I notice, I guess maybe this is the timeline that's driving this, but uh, to put a finer point on it, I notice what you're not saying is going to start to creep in in the next decade is lithium metal and or solid state. I, I think that the the... To, to, to get lithium metal slash solid state into the car industry by the end of the decade, the clock is ticking. Um, and the, it might, we might be running out of time to see it become a major part of the car industry before 2032. Um, I do believe that that's, that is the future and that's, that's where we will be headed eventually. Uh, but it's, to to you know because of that long extremely long timeline of uh, battery cell validation, really you're talking about a five year timeline from the moment that the the battery is completely designed and the design of the battery is finished to the moment that they produce the first car rolling off the assembly line with the battery in it is five years. So to get that in, um, we need to get those batteries designed on a, in a production environment uh, level of design in, you know, essentially by 20, within the next three years. And, and that's, that's the, the race that's happening now for companies like QuantumScape and Solid Power, um, which, are, which are, you know, very, as advanced as any company is, in developing an automotive level battery for that. So really they've got three years to, to uh, get to that design and pr- production capability point um, in order to show up in cars in the de- within the decade. I think that lithium metal batteries are gonna result, are gonna be about 150 gigawatt hour uh, market by the end of the decade, but they're gonna be in other things outside of cars mostly They'll just start to be appearing in cars at, at the end of the decade. Let's take a step back for a second. We've talked a little bit about energy density, which translates to range, which is one of the major characteristics on which we should be comparing all these different chemistries. The I think the other things that people care about as they evaluate new types of batteries and new configurations are fast charging ability and durability. Uh, how long will the battery actually last? Do you, are those the right additional metrics to be looking at? Am I missing anything in terms of sort of like the core comparative dynamics between these batteries? I think there are strings attached to those two requirements. Um, in terms of fast charging, most people that buy electric vehicles, their demand for fast charging gets gets pretty watered down once they're used to driving an electric car charging it at night on a on a level 2 charger and the their use of fast charging is few and far between in in actual real world usage so um fast charging is something that a a, a new is going to appeal to a new buyer that's never owned an electric vehicle before 
but once they get used to it, they realize this is this is a a a nice to have, not a requirement. Um, and how does that boil down into actual specs of the batteries and and the priorities of the car makers of how they make the batteries is still to be determined because obviously the faster you can charge, the more attractive the car is, no matter what. Um, but I, I'm just questioning where you're, when you're going to sacrifice other things such as cost, such as uh, energy density and, and other, other elements in order to, to bring about a fast charge, uh, a truly fast charge battery. Um, so yes, the, if, if you can give me a faster charge and I don't have to sacrifice anything else, I will definitely take it and be with a smile on my face. Um, but I'm, I'm questioning whether it's the, whether we're moving towards a world where that becomes a primary requirement. Um, interesting before you move on from that, it's interesting you say that I've, because I've heard, I've heard the opposite argument made, which is that in actuality, we're sort of hitting a asymptotic value uh, in terms of range already now, where the you know electric vehicles are basically, they have enough range for the duty cycle that most people need. And so now at this point, what really matters is the ability to fast charge because you've got enough range for your daily usage. So who cares if you get a little bit more range? What you care about is those situations in which you are going, you're going to be on a highway or a road trip or whatever it might be. In those situations, you really do care about ability to fast charge. And so I've heard it argued that like all of this focus on energy density and increasing range beyond where we already are may be unnecessary if we, in exchange, can get faster charging. Do you think that argument holds any water? I think the the core trade-off in electric vehicle design is range versus cost. And if I've reached an, uh, an asymptote in, in range, then therefore I can put less batteries in the car at that range if if I get more energy density, I put more batteries in the car, or fewer batteries in the car, and and keep the same range at a lower cost car. That's that's the core proposition and fundamental calculus of how to design an electric vehicle. Add fast charging on top of that, and it gets a little bit more complicated than that too. But I think that that's what you start with. Okay, and then I interrupted you before you talked about durability. Yeah, durability is another one with strings attached because um, to the the to a, a car buyer a million miles really is kind of meaningless. You, who 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 drives their car a million miles? To a car manufacturer, a million miles is that's that's frightening because that means that you're not going to the that buyer is not replacing that car for another for 10, 10 times the amount of time than they would originally. So who, who, who is really benefiting from that uh, million mile, um, from, from being able to, to do a million mile car? And by the way, I'm not, I'm not saying that we really are at the stage where you can have a million mile car, but it, that's what people are discussing and, 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 and deciding what, what are we going to trade off for a million mile car? Um, I think, you know, and, and obviously at that point, the battery just lasts far longer than the car itself. So um, it's it, that's a really difficult thing to, to, to get, you know, to, to, to kind of grasp where the value is and who should pay for that value. Um, the, the other, you know, it, a million mile car brings up the possibility of repurposing that battery pack once the car no longer functions, repurposing that battery pack for stationary storage. But I'm very skeptical about that proposition. Um, you, at that point, you've got an old device that you're, you're, you're putting into an environment that has a very demanding duty cycle, and you're competing against brand new batteries that are less than 100 bucks a kilowatt hour. So, you know, yeah, if it's free, you've got an advantage, but if it's free, what's the, what's the, perp, what, what's to motivate you from even pulling it out of the car to re, and spending the money on actually repurposing it? So it's, that's a really, uh, really delicate, um, and, and 
challenging business model to make sense of repurposing of batteries. Um, what I think is the future is vehicle to grid. And um, the, the, if you truly do have a million mile battery, the idea that you can use the heck out of that battery, not just to drive it, but as a stationary storage device while it's in the car becomes a very real uh, prospect. And we are we we don't know what shape that will that will take, how that will play out. But I think that's that is that is a, a that that is what a, a durable a truly durable battery really represents is the ability to do uh, use that battery constantly while it's in the car. That's interesting to hear that you're bullish on vehicle to grid long term. By the way, I I was a very much a bear on vehicle to grid. I was much more dismissive of it, even more so than repurposing for, for much of my career. But the, these new battery results, these new academic papers that are coming out showing some just tremendous results of um, durability in the battery with relatively minor changes to the chemistry inside the battery, um, it's, it, I'm, 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 a, uh, I'm a convert. So what you're saying is that the reason you were bearish on vehicle-to-grid historically was one of the arguments against vehicle-to-grid in general. And by the way, vehicle-to-grid, just to get our terminology right, we're talking about discharging a battery into the grid, uh, uh, discharging an EV battery into the grid. There's also like vehicle-to-home, which is sort of what Ford is is doing with the F-150 Lightning, where you can use your vehicle as whole home backup in lieu of a stationary storage device like a power wall or something like that. Um, so this is specifically in the context of discharging it into the grid. And one of the arguments against it has always been, it's just not worth, the juice is not worth the squeeze because the value that you're going to get out of the grid services that you will provide compared to the cost to the the longevity of your battery. Um, and setting aside also the sort of, you know, losing some charge in your battery if you may want to use it, but set that aside for a second, just the, the cost in terms of, the lifetime of your battery has never been worth it. And you're saying, look, if the battery is going to outlive the car anyway, uh, maybe you don't actually really care if you lose a little bit of, if you run some cycles um, by discharging the battery into the grid, because at the end of the day, you'll get some value out of that via those grid services. And you'll see no difference in terms of your ability to drive the car as long as you want to. Yeah. And, and I think, um, you know, both vehicle to grid and vehicle to home are are both solid applications that are are you know that I, I'm I'm thinking of them as as you know in, as being two sides of the same coin. Um, but I think the the uh, the the reason for bearishness in the past was that you had you're going to damage the battery the more you use it for something else you're going to damage it as well as you're you've you 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 want that that uh, above all else range is what you care about in your car you don't want to be stuck on the side of the road because you ran out of battery and if if you're putting yourself in danger of doing that then um that's that's a definite negative what's different is the batteries are better and they can endure uh, usage much, much more than they could in the past. Number two is the batteries packs have gotten bigger. If you have a 40 kilowatt hour Nissan leaf battery and the electric utility says, Hey, can I borrow 10 kilowatt hours? I really need it right now. Um, you're going to, you're not going to do that because that really affects your driving range. If you have a hundred kilowatt hour Tesla, and the utility says, "Can I borrow ten kilowatt hours?" That is a big uh, that 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 that's a, a legitimate choice and and a big change to that calculus. All right. So just to close out, um, you talked about what you think the sort of dominant chemistries will be over the next decade in terms of the landscape of who makes EV batteries. How do you see that evolving? over the coming years. Obviously, we've had the rise of some of the large Chinese EV battery OEMs like CATL and others 
uh, over the past five, 10 years. We've seen that story play out in other industries. But meanwhile, in, in EV batteries, you know, it is, there's still also a ton coming out of Japan and Korea um, with companies like Panasonic, which just announced another plant with Tesla and Kansas that they're going to build, LG, obviously. Um, what's the trend line there look like, you know, five, 10 years out? Um, we're in the midst of an unprecedented industrial expansion that, you know, I, I really struggle with finding any, any example of something like this, maybe the beginning of the car industry back in the, the 1900s, um, 1910s, something like that. But the, the scale of manufacturing build out is just jaw dropping in the battery industry. Um, we're, we're going, we're, the industry is literally increasing by almost doubling every year, uh, and will continue to do that for the next five or six years and doubling off of a huge base now. Um, so, you know, you, you'd think this is boom times and hundreds of, of startups are being created. No, there, there are a handful of new battery companies like Northvolt in Europe, um, and that are, that are appearing, but this is really the last chance for that for for a, a a new a brand new startup battery company to to be able to compete with the majors. What's really happening is we're moving more and more towards consolidation, and we're now we now have a handful of seven or eight large companies that produce eighty five percent of the batteries that are being made, and that trend is only increasing, not decreasing. All right, Sam. Super informative as every conversation I've had with you has been. Thank you so much for doing this. All right. Thanks very much, Dale. Sam Jaffe is the VP of Battery Solutions at eSource. Well, what did you think? Wonky enough for you? Let us know. Uh, you can find the show on Twitter at, at @catalystpod. You can find me there too. We always welcome your feedback. If you really liked it, then go over to Spotify or Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts, and leave us a rating and review. This show is a co-production of Postscript Media and Canary Media. You can head over to canarymedia.com for links and more info on today's topics. And as always, Postscript is supported by Prelude Ventures, a venture capital firm that partners with entrepreneurs to address climate change across a range of sectors, including advanced energy, food and ag, transportation and logistics, advanced materials and manufacturing, and advanced computing. This episode was produced by Daniel Waldorf and Delvin Abouaji. Mixing by Greg Vilfrank and Sean Marquand. Theme song by Sean Marquand. Our managing producer is Cecily Meza-Martinez. I'm Shale Khan, and this is Catalyst. Catalyst.